if you are literally a medical student or a resident, you should be building your reputation and your brand immediately. Do an Instagram, you know, get your Instagram site, get onto LinkedIn to identify and who the people that you want to be a part of. And if you're that 60-year-old guy that's just like, I'm not done yet and I want to make a difference, you can do it then too. You know, you can make changes to get yourself excited to wake up in the morning by trying new ideas. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of Anesthesia Pain Management Success. I am once again reaching into the orthopod pool and I have a special guest today, Dr. Scott Sigmund joining us. Welcome, Dr. Sigmund. Justin, it is a pleasure to be here, especially with a, a fellow podcast hoster. I love it. Thanks for having me. That's right. In addition to being uh, an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Sigmund has the ortho show, which is probably most of the listeners in this audience wouldn't necessarily have a reason to listen to, but I reached out to Dr. Sigmund because of his alignment in terms of wanting to help physicians get out of the rat race and his unique position and awareness of many of the issues physicians face. Obviously, orthopedists and frankly, pain management doctors, they're a lot, they're like hand in hand, a lot of the issues with physician reimbursement, surgery center complexity, ancillary opportunities. And so I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. Yeah, no, thrilled to be here, man. Let's do this. Let's educate the world we can. Yes. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your journey, because you obviously medical education doesn't position a bunch of entrepreneurs to come out of the blocks and like do their own thing. But you are here carving your own path in medicine. Tell me a little bit about where you come from. Yeah. So grew up in Baltimore. Both of my parents were entrepreneurs. So it was something I grew up with. My mother was a headhunter and she had her own business and was very successful. My father was a chemical engineer from MIT and spent a bunch of time in the sugar industry. And then one day uh, decided that he wanted to open his own business in the trucking industry, he became a consultant to the people that were moving freight around the country. And so that was a natural experience for me. And what I was able to see is that when they both sort of broke out you know, from the suit world in which they lived and be able to sort of control their own destiny, things really took off for them and they were very successful. And it's always been in my blood always looking for opportunities. But I also always knew I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. From 10th grade, injured myself, had a sports medicine injury. I was a captain of the football and lacrosse team. I did very well in school. And it just was a natural process for me to go into orthopedics. So I wanted to be an independent doctor, have decision-making, own my own business. And if you're in private practice, you are an, an entrepreneur. And then look and identify additional options and uh, options out there as well. So at what point did you start to express some of that entrepreneurial itch in your medicine journey? Was it like immediately after training or did it take a little while for that to come to fruition? Well, I think one of the things that we see a lot of right now, we hear a lot about is physician burnout, right? And, and what does that mean? Well, every day we're asked to do more and we're actually compensated less. And so it's become a true volume oriented uh, practice at this point. And it's a, it's a real struggle bus if that's all you're doing. So very early on in my practice, I decided that I wanted to be a clinical orthopedic surgeon, but I wanted to be in touch with what else was going on out there. And that for me early on meant professional education, for example, a way to get out of clinical practice and, and identify things that I have learned that I could teach. 
medical device design, medical device development, these types of things, which were really, you know, for me, a real way to sort of separate myself from clinical medicine and really open up doors for additional relationships. And those additional relationships are typically what drives you towards an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You identify a problem. Can you then come up with a solution? And then most importantly, who are you going to team with? to make sure that that solution actually comes to fruition. Did you have any moments in terms of like building your network and realizing some of the fruit from that seed that you had planted where you're like, holy smokes, this is totally different than when you're a university hospital employed physician over at XYZ University? It, it, it's almost every day now that, that Justin, the relationships that I've developed over a 25 year clinical practice have sort of elevated my game to be asked to be on certain advisory boards, you know, for example, for startup companies. I have over a hundred thousand people that follow me typically on LinkedIn. So I have a very large social media network in which we we help to influence and make positive decisions on. So I, I, I always say as I mentor and people that are interested, you know, developing the relationships early in life and maintaining those over a timeline, you never know when that person that you developed a relationship may be the key to some successful venture that you may have later in life. Yeah. I was actually giving a talk this morning to an anesthesia residency program and talking about, I call them above the line and below the line considerations. And I have this line on this PowerPoint slide. Everything above the line is like, what happens with the money that you don't yet have, the economics that you might benefit from, but isn't yours yet. And one of the little bubbles I have up there is personal brand. Personal brand is one of these things that contributes meaningfully to your personal economics, but it's hard to quantify. It's kind of squishy and intangible. And it's it's not totally, it's not concrete. Like, oh, it's a, an investment, for example. So you're a, someone who I've really like respected in the world of creating and cultivating a personal brand and a professional voice. And a, I got to imagine that has been a significant lever for you to build and develop this network, which continues to beget opportunities. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? So first and foremost, it's carefully cultivated. It's not by accident. And what I also say is, you know, the message for your personal brand is going to be unique to you. What is it that gets you excited? What is it that gets you to wake up in the morning and want to be active and do something unique and different? And for some people, it may be messaging about education. So you may want to have your brand about patient education on new techniques and ideas. For another person, it may be, I want to be world-renowned and I want to be a part of society so that people from around the world know who I am. You can then do that, but you have to work your way up in that process. It may be you're an industry person. Yes, you're a clinical doctor, but you're going to want to brand with industry to be able to help share new ideas. So the point I try to make is, you know, it's unique for each and every individual. Find out what gets you excited, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and then work on those strengths and, and sort of then cultivate your brand and your message. And then most importantly, you got to message it. You got to tell people about it. You got to be able to share it. And there's a lot of ways in which you can do that as well. I'm a huge fan of getting first name, last name, MD or DO.com whenever possible. And I was just in my research for this conversation. Scott A. Sibian, MD.com is a little piece of virtual real estate that you own. Anybody out there listening, domains.google.com, go there, see if your name is available. If it is, and you can get it for $12 a year, do it. You don't need to use it right now. You can leave it on ice for a period of time. Maybe your current employment agreement doesn't allow you to have a 
website with your name on it, which is totally dumb, by the way, in my opinion, but it does happen. And that's a perfect place to begin to cultivate what you said, an intentionally crafted personal brand. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure how, how old or young your listeners are, but my message is you can't start too early and you can't start too late. So, you know, if you are literally a medical student or a resident, you should be building your reputation and your brand immediately. Do an Instagram, you know, get your Instagram site, get onto LinkedIn to identify and who are the people that you want to be a part of. And if you're that 60 year old guy that's just like, I'm not done yet and I want to make a difference, you can do it then too. You know, you can make changes to get yourself excited to wake up in the morning by trying new ideas. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I'm walking, talking proof of this too, because, you know, three and a half years ago, I had some friends saying, you need to start a podcast, Justin. And I was thinking, what am I going to say that people aren't already saying out there? And here I am 180 episodes later, and I tell people unequivocally, it's the best professional thing I've ever done, just because it allows for conversations like this one. Yeah, you get to meet amazing people. No matter what, you always become smarter. You always take away more than what you bring. You got a great voice. You got a great attitude. I love it. You're short and succinct on your questions. So you're a great podcast host. And most importantly, you never know how your guests are going to be, though, right? You know, that's the problem, Justin. You bring people (laughs) on. Sometimes they don't know the rules. So uh, that's right. This so far is going fantastic. Excellent. Why don't you give our listeners a sense of like what your day-to-day or week-to-week looks like? Because right now you're in sunny San Diego. I see the sun streaming in through the background there. But how much time are you in the OR? How much time are you consulting? And what what else do you have going on? Yeah, I'm a very busy clinical practitioner still. You know, I see 65 patients in a day. I typically operate on, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 patients in a week. But my day starts early. You know, I get up at around five o'clock. We've got to go walk Obi, who's my, who's my dog, who has unsolicited uh, love for me regardless, doesn't ask for DoorDash money or anything else like my other kids do. So we take care of Obi early on in the morning and then we start getting stuff done. I exercise every day. I think it's super important to, you know, you got to keep yourself healthy. You can help yourself so you can help others. And then for me, there's not a lot of wasted time, you know? So I'm constantly interacting with business consultants and, you know, my podcast uh, producer, uh, Ortho Laser, which is my franchise that we've started, which I'd love to talk a little bit about. We're constantly having conversations there. Now I'm on the Surgeon Advisory Board for five different companies. I'm also now going to be on the social media board for a journal. So there's a lot of things that are happening. But I think that, you know, the concept of multitasking doesn't work. I think you really do one task at a time and you do it well. But the key is to really identify your time and not waste your time if you can help it. So, for example, I'm in San Diego today. I'm going to be doing a a studio film shoot with Matthew Ray Scott for Hair and Therapeutics, which manufactures Zen Relief, which is part of my opioid sparing brand that I'm thrilled to be a part of. And we're going to be I'm going to be a digital opinion leader, which is a new term that we've coined not just a key opinion leader, but a digital opinion leader. We're going to develop videos and then share those across networks of influencers that can help to improve the marketing messaging for pharma companies, medical device companies, et cetera. So for me, it's it's a lot. There's a lot going on, which we love to do, but I also love the clinical practice of medicine, but I, I also love getting on a plane and, and, and filming a message. This is really important, Justin, for our listeners out there, you know, I can be as busy as I can possibly be and see maybe 65 or 70 patients, but that's all I can touch in a day. If I do a video like this and we talk about opioid sparing philosophy, 
I can influence the lives of patients I will never meet by scaling this concept of what we're trying to do here. So to me, it's as important as opening up the patient door to take care of a patient. Yeah. You mentioned Matthew Ray Scott. We're talking before we hit record here. He is somebody who I really have admired a lot of his work and the way that he's equipping physicians for this work. He has Feed the Agency is the name of his uh, company, and we'll link to them in the show notes, apmsuccess.com slash 180. We're going to have all the relevant links for today's conversation, but would encourage anybody who's on LinkedIn to follow him. He has so much great perspective and even just methods and tactics of how to build, cultivate this personal brand, how to replicate yourself and your influence through the use of video. I've learned a ton from him over the years, and he's somebody that I've been really glad to have in my network. We, we have an exciting project coming up while we're, while we're talking about Matthew again. Matthew and I are teaming up for a master brand physician class. So for this exact stuff that we're talking about, right? It, you know, you're 50 years old, you're in clinical practice, you're not thrilled with where you are right now, you want to develop the ideal patient, but yet you're having a hard time communicating and finding them. Well, our Physician Master Brand class is going to be an on-demand as well as online course where literally we're going to teach you that stuff. We're going to go over the nuts and bolts of exactly how you develop a brand, exactly how you develop a message. We're going to bring in special guest stars that are really fantastic mentors in their space within this. So we're really excited about that project. So if you're if you're following uh, Matthew and I on LinkedIn, keep an eye out. There'll be some more messaging about that. Awesome. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. That's another area that I'm, I do see, you know, in the ongoing mission to give physicians as much autonomy and as much power of self-determination as possible, being able to find the right patients and allow them to find you without significant incremental effort on your part or cost. That's one of those things. It's like starting a podcast. I mean, it doesn't happen in a day, but over three years, all of a sudden you've got a three-year head start (laughs) over any other physician in your market. And it can be a really powerful thing over time. Yeah, I mean, the, the the traditional money pit of marketing has never really been attractive to doctors. It's also something that they've been uh, sort of told, especially as old guys, that you really shouldn't do that anyway, right? It's just go open up, a, put your shingle out on the door, go talk to your primary cares in the local area, and sort of wait for patients to come and see you, do some fractures, some other stuff you don't want to do. And then 15 years later, you built up critical mass and you have this amazing practice, but you don't have to wait. You know, you don't have to do that. I mean, you can market to your patients. I, I One of the things that I love to say is that it gives me the great satisfaction as I'm going to open up my next patient door. As I open it, I know that that patient sought me out. They're in the chair because they want to see the fro because of the rotator cuff that I do, because the opioid sparing that I do, or the type of ACL that I do. So now I'm not having to have this whole I've half the battle's done. They're there because they want to see me already. And now we can sit down, I can educate them. And then we come up with a negotiated settlement about what we're going to do to heal them. And if you're wondering why they're coming to see the fro, you can take this opportunity to subscribe to the YouTube channel and you can see what Dr. Sigmund is talking about. Hashtag follow the fro. That's one of my brands that has grown upon itself for sure. It's, it just rolls off the tongue. It does. It really does. (laughs) I'd love to hear about ortho laser, and this is a big topic, and there's so much complexity to, you know, a clinical approach with a franchise model and the the science behind it and the business. So tell us the story of where did ortho laser come from? 
The ortholaser was truly born out of my desire to have an opioid sparing philosophy in orthopedic surgery. So it was about 2012. I'll never forget it. My wife is a florist. And there were five kids from our local high school that had died of opioid overdose in 2012 from the same high school class. It was devastating. And I sort of looked around and I'm like, what are we doing? Right. This was right in the era where Purdue was going big time uh, with their with their advertisements and marketing of opioids as being inexpensive and really minimally addictive, which we all know couldn't be further from the truth. And so that was about the time where Loposomal Bupivacaine came out, which is the first long-acting anesthetic that was truly an opioid alternative option. So I was a very early adopter in that. And then it just sort of grew. And I wanted to educate as many people as we could. And was from that, that, you know, around 2018, I was approached about the laser as an, uh, an alternative source of, of pain and inflammation. And I really did a deep dive. I was like, this is really interesting. I brought it into my office. We used it, friends and family. It was really working. I said, this is great. And then this is an all too familiar story for, for your listeners out there that are part of a group, pack, uh, group, a group practice. I was railroaded out of my office about three months later. What is this? We've never heard of it. Why is it in our office? You know, this is not something that's been taught in medical school. How could you be doing this? This is, you know, you're a snake oil sales. It went on and on. So I was like, you know something? I get it. Okay. And as a general rule in life, as an entrepreneur, when somebody and a lot of people are telling you that your idea is a bad one, it's probably a good one. And so I did not look back and I opened up my own center. I bought three lasers and I said, look, this is this is a modality that shouldn't be in an expensive medical practice that has overhead through the roof because it runs through insurance and HR and benefits and all those things. It should be an isolated center where all we're doing is laser, minimizing overall cost. And then the laser manufacturer and the distributor caught wind of what I was doing, came in, saw my center. Two weeks later, we went to Panera pulled out a napkin, and we wrote down the concept for the OrthoLaser franchise, and then we partnered together, and here we are. So I'm more than happy to, to, to I want to give you a moment to take a breath here and sort of study that, but you know, more than happy to talk about the rest of the laser process and the franchise as well. Yeah, I'd love to get into that, but I'm curious from a decision-making standpoint for you. So you're doing this thing, you're testing it out, you're looking at the evidence, and then you're, you know, the the managing partner is like, oh my, did you hear what Dr. Sigmund is doing down the hall? And then the hammer comes down. Can you describe to me kind of how that felt? And what is, was it an immediate, like, I'm doing this myself. Like, I'm gonna, I don't need you guys. Or was there, a, was there any doubts for you as you're thinking about investing in a significant enterprise like this? Yeah, of course there are doubts, right? I mean, if you talk to any entrepreneur, you know, like Guy Raz is one of my favorite, you know, oh, Howard me too. Dopes, right? Yeah. Great, great podcast. They'll all tell you the same thing. There's no book. There's no playbook. You know, nobody's going to tell you how to do this. You're going to have as much failure as you are going to have success. I went to Italy. I had studied up on the laser. The basic science and the clinical data around the world was outstanding. I knew it wasn't taught in medical school curriculums. I knew it was going to be an uphill battle, but I was like, this is a mission. You know, this is a mission. This is not a mercenary project. This is a missionary product. We're going to do something. We're going to open up a business that's going to help society. I believe in this and I'm going to do it. And so it was hard, you know, independently, the only, you know, physician starting this, this clinical practice, a, a large financial investment on my part to be able to do it, but we did really well. Unfortunately, a pandemic came, rolled around, which put us all at pause for a long period of time. But then, you know, what, what, what's happened, which is really, you know, quite sort of gratifying is the validation of laser has occurred 
through many of our large medical societies, which no one expected to happen. So the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery did a deep dive on knee arthritis and decided to come up with updated guidelines on the treatment of knee arthritis. And they looked at all the literature support and laser made the list. So now, all of a sudden, my partners who are pointing their finger at me saying, what is this hocus pocus? are like, oh, okay, they're piquing their interest a little bit. And then about nine months ago, the Centers for Disease Control, for the first time in a while, gave updated guidelines on opioid prescribing, focusing on alternative pain management strategies, and laser made the list. So now the Centers for Disease Control and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery have laser on the recommended list. And of the 12 partners that poo-pooed me early on, 10 of those are my partners in my ortholaser franchise in Chelmsford. So it's not easy. I'll tell everybody right now. If you're looking to do something easy, don't become an entrepreneur, okay? Just keep doing that W2 thing that you're doing and hope for the best and plot along and get on that bike and pedal as hard as you can. But if you have an idea and you're willing to put in energy, find the right partners to work with you, even against adversity, it can still be successful. Yeah. When thinking about these types of decisions, there's a guy named Seth Godin, who's like a marketing guru type who perhaps you've heard of. He has this reframing of a classic question, which is, what would you do if you knew that you wouldn't fail? And he takes it and turns it on its head to examine the missional mindedness of a potential venture and says, what would you do if you knew that you would still fail? And I think that's really helpful to say, this clarifies, am I doing this for the right reason? Like, is the cause that I'm trying to advance worth the blood, sweat, tears, and money that I'm going to invest in something? And I think the journey that you just articulated is maps perfectly onto that kind of paradigm. No, it's interesting. I've never heard it, you know, specifically that way, but that's that's the reality, you know, of the process. And, you know, again, for our listeners, I'm not sure people are aware, but the laser, it's a cold laser that we use. So it's not a surgical laser. It doesn't generate heat energy. It pushes photons into the tissues about six to eight centimeters, and it changes the cellular milieu. And I always say this, you know, we're a successful species uh, on a planet that has a sun. We've been around for 300,000 years. It shouldn't come as a as a shock that in our deepest genetic code, we are sensitive to light and we are. And so if you can shine the right light to the right area, you can create a healing response. And that's what laser does. So it's 10 to 15 minute sessions. Uh, they're in and out very quickly. We're, you know, high flow, but we're, we're patient centric on the experience. Uh, it's very much like a salon, you know, great music. You know, everyone looks, all 14 of our current centers look alike. They're per, they're totally branded. And then, you know, it requires multiple treatments. It takes upwards of, you know, six treatments for acute injuries. We also use a laser post-operatively. The CDC now recommends laser for post-operative management too. So we use it perioperatively to reduce pain, to reduce the need for medication. And then all the chronic inflammatory conditions as well, which typically get 12 treatments. It's a patient pay model. There's no CPT code for this. You can legally self-refer. There's no Stark Law issues because it's not a DHS or designated health service. There is no CPT code. It is a patient pay model. So our franchises are primarily physician-owned. 
So for those that don't listen to my podcast, you should. It's called The Ortho Show. And we just had Will Kurtz on, who's a terrific orthopedic surgeon from Nash from Nashville, Tennessee. Very big thinker. He's a joint replacement surgeon. And he just wrote a paper in Ira Kirschenbaum's journal, the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, about the commoditization of orthopedic surgeons. And he compared orthopedic surgeons to flat screen TVs. He's like, you know, 20 years ago, you know, you bought a flat screen TV and you, you had to spend a lot of money, but the quality was really cool and it was great. And then what's happened now? You can go into Walmart and buy a flat screen TV for 200 bucks. And really it's not about the quality anymore. It's just about the cost. And that's what's happened to physicians. So we used to be compensated really well for our time, but now there's a drain from the hospital systems. The commercial payers are all about top line revenue, don't really care about saving money per se. And so what's happened? We've been squeezed. We're working harder. We're making less money and we're asked to do more every day. So OrthoLaser, along with a lot of other different ancillary options, can provide mailbox money and it's a triple win. You know, the patients are, our efficacy rates are outstanding. We're 85 to 86% patients satisfied with their clinical outcomes. Our net promoter score is 85, which is a great number. Anything above 50 is a great number. And so patients are happy. Doctors feel great because you're providing, you know, this missionary franchise business that helps to heal patients and provide them treatment solutions for pain and inflammation. And yes, you can generate some extra revenue. And I don't feel guilty about that. You know, we thought long and hard about how this strategy would work. Eventually, one day it may be covered by insurance. But for now, you know, we're first in space and we're really thrilled to be able to offer it. Yeah. For as long as physicians continue to feel guilty about generating profit, they're going to continue to get their lunch eaten by people who don't feel guilty about that. So if you don't take anything else from this, it's good that you get paid a good wage for providing an immensely valuable service. I'm curious to understand your experience around that first location and like building a model. And then as you transition from like, we're going to do a certain thing in a certain place to now we're going to create a rubber stamp and a template and a playbook to begin to franchise it. How did that evolve? Yeah. So it, it, you got to get the right team members around you. And again, uh, no matter who you talk to that started one of these types of businesses, it's always that, right? I'm an expert at orthopedic surgery. I'm not an expert at looking at profit and loss statements. I'm not an expert in franchise development and marketing and sales. So putting together a team around you, get a CEO that understands the business. I'm the chief medical officer and founder, yet I have a CEO that we brought in immediately who had experience in business development to help us. So what the whole idea is with franchises in particular is the scalability of what you're trying to do so that more and more people have the availability of this great you know, modality that most people are unaware of. And so it was a slow and steady process. You know, We have 14 centers that are open now. And what we found is that people really like our business pro forma, uh, the financial people that are a part of the process. And so rather than just one-offing on one center, a lot of people are invested in area development agreements. So I want the Metroplex of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I want to be able to open up 12 centers. And that's how they're signing on board, which is great for us because we don't then have to identify every single location for for every, every physician. Now, I know that you have some non-physician listeners out there too. So let's talk a little bit about that. We're a franchise model, and our franchise is typically set up with a PLLC, which is a professional limited liability corporation. 
so that the license of the physician is the license of the center. So you don't have to go and get a regulatory license for each center that you're opening. And then what happens is everybody knows in the business world, you know, in order to scale something, you want to be able to do something above the level of the franchise. So an MSO model is typically set up, managerial service organization. And the good news is, is that within the MSO model, non-physicians can have ownership of the process. So you have a licensed physician that's part of the franchise. It's a pass-through that goes through. It's just a pass-through organization, but the MSO is what manages the process above. So we have revenue cycle management people that have jumped on board. We've had medical device distributors who have come on board who then become active equity owners in the MSO above the franchise. They then bring in capital and they'll buy, for example, in Massachusetts, Brian Hall, who is managing our ADA, has signed up for 12 centers in Massachusetts. He's going to open up two in the first year, and we're going to roll from there. So there's a lot of great opportunity here, again, uh, for, for this modality to truly grow. And my, you know, I got asked, we just hired a new marketing vice president who basically asked me over the phone the other day, what's your vision? You know, how do you see this playing out? I said, I want laser available to every person in the United States that wants to be able to do it. We need to, be able to keep our people mobile. We want to keep them out of pain. It doesn't have to always be surgery. If it is surgery, we can help you with your pain so you don't get addicted to opioids. So maybe Walmart buys us, You know, maybe Amazon buys us, where we can then sort of get into the space all around the country. There's a lot there. And I want to take this moment to make a quick disclaimer that none of this conversation Counts as legal advice, counts as financial advice, counts as clinical advice, like read your own journals, talk to your own lawyers. That always goes without saying, but it's the things that go without saying that need to be said. I'm curious, you know, in terms of how this is developing over time, I I think that's a really compelling vision. Do you see a road to like commercial payers having a CPT code for this? And how does that change the game? So let's talk about that. The, The arduous process of getting a CPT code for a medical device is really difficult. So you have to go through a PMA, which is a, a, a pre-market you know, process through the FDA. It usually requires large randomized controlled trials, which cost you know, tens of millions of dollars. And then when you're done with the FDA, they usually tell you, you're going to come through this and you're going to do it for a single diagnosis. So yes, we can, go to, we can go to the FDA, we can pull up you know, $30 million, run a couple of randomized controlled trials, and then they say, great you now have an indication for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. And if you want to do it for the shoulder, guess what? We need some randomized controlled trials for the shoulder. So it's it's immensely difficult to get through that process, which is why for our pain specialists that are are listening, you know, orthobiologics, why have orthobiologics, which there's more and more data every day, PRP, BMAC, bone marrow aspirin concentrate, lipogems, you know, there's all of these things that are out there that clearly have success, but yet do not have a CPT code. So we are asking our patients to pay out of pocket for these modalities. And it is what it is. That's the reality of where we are now. Eventually, one day, that may happen, Justin, that there'll be a CPT code and runs through insurance. But I would say it's pretty far down the line. Do you envision a world in which all these franchises band together to do this RCT nationally that can help move the ball down the field on that? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that, you know, at the franchisor level, you know, as we grow and expand, we're going to want data, we're going to want clinical support, 
to show that what we're doing truly works. So we're running studies. We're we're considering starting a post-operative randomized controlled trial as we speak now to prove and show that the laser is efficacious around perioperative treatment. But again, I mean that's that's a, a long way down down the line. I think that you know would would it be nice to have laser as a commodity around so that it's affordable for most patients to be able to do? Yeah, that's where we'd like to be. But more and more things are not covered by insurance these days rather than being covered by insurance. So patients are used to it. They're they're familiar with the concept. Is this something that only orthopedic surgeons can use or what specialties participate with this? Excellent question. So we have a number of pain management specialists, whether it's PMNR or anesthesiologists that are equity owners in our centers across the country, and we welcome them as part of their pain management strategy. Our latest endeavor, which we're really excited about, is that the telemedicine laws around the country have really sort of been revolutionized, if you will. And we've been hesitant to doing any kind of direct-to-consumer marketing because we felt strongly that a physician-patient relationship should be established when making a recommendation for medical treatment. But now there are some, some newer principles in about 47 out of the 50 states now allow for asynchronous telemedicine. So what does that mean? So rather than having a direct communication like you and I are having, whether it's audio over the phone or audio visual with this type of a Zoom meeting, you can actually have a store and form uh, type of, of process where they answer a questionnaire. The questionnaire then gets forwarded to a clinician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, or doctor who reviews the questionnaire and says, yes, you meet the criteria to be able to have laser. And then within a you know, two hour turnaround or let's say less than 24 hours, a patient can now start laser treatment without making an appointment to go see a doctor, without going and tracking down your electronic medical record or your MRI report or something to show that you've got this. So they fill out the questionnaire, they can be seen the next day, laser can be started. And within their consent, we specifically put in language to say, look, if you're one of the 15% that don't get better after laser treatment, we advise that you seek direct medical care with a clinician. So from a medical legal perspective, we've met the criteria for a physician-patient relationship that the Board of Registration of Medicine requires. And so we then, in our consent, provide an escape for them to get additional treatment if they need to. And so we're really now excited about starting a marketing campaign direct to consumer so that everybody can learn about this instead of the slow process that we've had so far. What's been the hardest part of this journey for you? You know, it's 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 been something that I've seen throughout my entire clinical practice, and that is when you have new ideals, new ideas, more often than not, you're going to get rotten tomatoes. And it, it's been that way for me, whether I do this new patch that you use for shoulder surgery, which no one has heard about yet, or if we're doing the bare ACL, which is this new collagen-based ACL restoration People are always going to be skeptical. They're always going to be naysayers. They're always going to tell you that what you're doing is is not the right way to go. But at the end of the day, if you do your research and if you believe in it, it may take a while. You know, it may, it may take years, but eventually, more often than not, if you've done it right, you're going to get proven correctly, and then eventually, the laggards will cross the chasm of uh, innovation with you, and then it becomes mainstream. So it's been something I've been doing my entire career. I'd like to close and kind of talk about the 
sort of diverse components of your career as it now stands and help physicians who are perhaps earlier on and are thinking, oh my gosh, industry consulting or entrepreneurship or owning a share in a couple of these lasers, that sounds so like sexy and cool. And you say mailbox money. I like the idea of money in my mailbox. How would you encourage physicians who are trying to take that first step or trying to accelerate that journey? What has been most helpful for you in moving that forward? And can you give them a little like taste of what are the best parts of that for you? Yeah. So for me, it's, it's always, always, always about relationships. And so it's the relationships that I've made along in my career path that have helped me to be able to do the multiple things that I do. Right. So what do I do? So I have this really cool podcast. It's a complete labor of love. You know, I'm not making any money on it, although that's not entirely true. I think we just got an offer to potentially sell it. So we'll see. But that's been, you know, it's been a three to four year history of building that process up over time, you know, starting a franchise outside of clinical practice and now um, being a national franchisor I'm on the surgeon advisory boards for four to five different companies. I'd like to describe myself as a unicorn finder, you know, trying to identify that next big thing that everyone else is trying to identify and really be able to help it move along. So surgeon advisory boards, professional education, super important to me too. I just got named to the surgeon advisory board for Precision OS, which is a really cool new company, which is a virtual reality company, which we're going to now use the metaverse to be able to instruct and teach uh, surgical trainees on how to do surgery without necessarily, you know, you know, using cadavers or or practicing on people, so we can get reps in the in this world. Amazing technology, super excited about that. So that's part of what I do as far as professional education. I'm an editor on journals because I like to be a part of what's happening in the process of what's happening as well. But I mean, so there's a lot of things that I do and I get made fun of all the time by some of my dearest friends about like Michael Redler is a dear friend of mine. We just went down to Honduras on a medical mission. He's like, Scott, I don't know, you know how, how you do it all. So you don't have to do it all. And it certainly didn't happen overnight. And so my advice is develop these relationships, identify the things that get you excited. So for example, you know, do you want to be a member of a society? Do you want to become, if you're going to be a member of a society of anesthesia or whatnot, get yourself on the committees so that you can potentially work your way up, you know, through the process where then you become this respected individual within your specialty, which helps to drive patients to want to be a part of what you're doing. And then, you know, another great tool is to go onto LinkedIn and identify the people that resonate with you and then become part of their world. And the way in which you do that is you start to like their comments and you then comment on their comments. And I always say, there's always room at the table of innovation. So you might think that this person is so big or too important that they're never going to want to talk to me. They're never going to mentor me. They're never going to provide me advice, but that's actually not the case. If you identify what gets them excited, and then you can you can then communicate with them about that, then you get the seat at the table. And the next thing you know, somebody's wanting to message you to say, what is your thought process on this? So hard work, energy, you know, take your time, build it over time. It's never too early or too late to start. One of my big thoughts as well. Yeah. LinkedIn is such a great place. It's not a place towards which physicians naturally gravitate unless they're like looking for a job. Then they do that last minute scrub of their profile when they're applying. But I would say there are a lot of people there that want to collaborate and a lot of industry partners, especially. And if you're looking to build those industry relationships, there's probably not a better place to do it than LinkedIn. 
hundred percent. It is. I mean, I use social media across all avenues, and I like to have fun too. I mean, LinkedIn is is the business Facebook of business, right? I'm not publishing. I love my kids, but I'm not showing the kids graduation party. You know, it's about what are the things that I'm doing? Like I'm going to publish a video when we're done here that Matthew Ray Scott and I did talking about a digital opinion leader. We're going to focus on that. We talk about what meetings I'm going to go to. And then, you know, you develop this relationships with people over time. Big fan of Instagram. I have lots of fun on Instagram. I, I say that's for the young people. Like we just did a video and, you know, in the, in the OR yesterday that was really well received. And I was like, you know, look, kids, you know, next time your parents tell you that you're you're getting too much screen time, right? You tell them you're practicing to be a surgeon because let me show you. Because arthroscopy is like gaming, right? It's like the same sort of maneuvers and things that you're doing. So that was well received, lots of fun. And then Facebook is for the old people. I always get get yelled at for that, but it's for your local community. If you're sharing things and ideas that you want patients to know about, but it helps to sort of build up you know, your brand, all of those avenues help to build your brand so that people can identify with you so that when they walk in the door to see you as a clinician, they already have a sense of who you are. They, they have a sense of what's important to you and they love being a part of something bigger than themselves. So they share in the stories that you've shared. And it's really a lot of fun. I really enjoy all of it. I want to ask one question in closing. You are a physician who has diverse talents and interests and your vocation is pretty broad. I'm curious if there's a time you can think of, whether it's a patient encounter, a business pursuit, maybe like something with launching OrthoLaser and scaling it where you felt in that moment a real connection to the vision that you have for yourself, to the mission that you as a physician are trying to espouse, and you felt like this is what I'm like living into the successful life for me right now. Yeah, there's been a few moments and they've been, most of them have been relatively recent, you know. There's an implant that I use called the Regenitin implant, which I started using about eight years ago. I call it the cow patch. They get mad at me because it's made out of bovine cartilage. It's like a, it's like a patch that goes over the rotator cuff. I've probably done about 3,500, almost 4,000 patients. And when I first started doing it, it was rotten tomatoes. I mean, it didn't matter where I went. People were like, what are you doing? This is not great, et cetera. There was a paper that was just almost published out of Spain, which showed that in a randomized controlled trial, if the cow patch was used, there was 97% success. And if they did not use a cow patch, it was a 25% failure. So those are the things, those moments in time when you know you've been swimming upstream, you know that people have been cynical, you know that people have been against your thought process, and then you get this validation of your thought process over time. The same thing happened for us for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the Centers for Disease Control. And my friends were all the same. They're like, you know, they also call me Siggy. They're like, Siggy, who did you call? You're like, how did you make that happen? And I said, I didn't call anybody. I'm like, this is what I'm trying to tell you. I did the research. This stuff the science works. stands on its own. I, it's, you know, it's transparent. You just have to, you know, the people that drive me the, the, the bonkers the most are the ones that say no. Meet, the first thing that they say is no. And they've never done any research. They don't have any understanding or backing to why they're saying no, but they just say no. So I think it's a natural instinct. Zed Williamson, who was our guest of ours from Trackable Med, who was on the Ortho Show, said, our body and human beings are distinctly meant from neuroscience to say no, right? You know, you're going to get step on that spider. You're going to say no, right? You're scared that something's going to happen. So I understand that. 
there's been a lot of challenges in my professional career. I'm happy to say that most of them have been worth the effort. You can't be afraid to fail. The only way that you can be successful is to take on the challenge. If you do fail, you get back up and you keep moving forwards. That's my best advice. Awesome. Well, Dr. Scott Sigmund, thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. It's my pleasure, Justin. Great job. Really appreciate you having me on. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.